Good morning, Redemption Arcadia. So glad that you have joined us this morning. Would you stand and we will worship the Lord together this morning. It's Palm Sunday. Happy Palm Sunday. Let's worship. Your faithfulness to 
rising sun to the setting same I will praise your name and great is your faithfulness to me amen well God is indeed faithful to us and we're thankful for that now is the time in the service where we confess that while he has been faithful to us, uh, we have not been faithful. And so let's read together this Palm Sunday confession. Oh God, you know us well. We are quick to speak of faith, but slow to live it fully. We shout Hosanna as Jesus approaches, as did the people of Jerusalem many years ago. But we do not want him to come too close not close enough to really see. Oh God, you know us well. We are quick to claim faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. But like the throng who greeted his entry into Jerusalem, we are fickle, slow to live fully and everywhere as faithful disciples. We know where we fail. Oh God, you know us well. We are quick to want the blessings of faithfulness, but like the 12 who spent the last week with him, we are slow to accept the pain and suffering of authentic Christ-like living. Forgive us our weakness and fear. Amen. Oh 
Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey.
never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop. let's just take a second now and think back over your week and just contemplate and reflect before the Lord. Where have you seen God at work this week? In your family, in your job, just take a minute and consider that. And as you're doing that, if if nothing's coming to mind, then I'd encourage you to lean on the bridge of this song that reminds us that even when we don't see it or feel it, we can trust that God is working. And now with those things in mind, take a second in your heart or out loud and give God praise for the ways that you've seen him work and the ways that you've not seen him work, knowing that he has. God, thank you for that. God, thank you for those times that we can look back and see your hand at work. And yet, God, in faith, we can know that you are at work even when we're blind to it. So we thank you for who you are, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and take a seat. Well, welcome, Redemption Church. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thanks for being here with us. If maybe this is your first time or even first time in a while, we want to say thanks for being here. Uh, and for those joining us online, if it's your first time as well, we want to welcome you. Thanks for being here. We are one church in 10 local congregations throughout Arizona. And together we are gospel-centered and outward-focused, and we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. I've got a couple of quick announcements for us, and then we'll get into our scripture reading and our service. So one, uh, the resurrection weekend is next weekend. That's Easter, Good Friday. That's this coming week already. And so 
a couple of things I want you to know. These cards here, they're on the Connect desk. They're just a two-sided simple card. I'd love to see all of those gone today. The intention with that was that you would each take a few and pass them out to your neighbors and friends and in your communities this week and invite them into what we're calling Resurrection Weekend. The reason we're calling it that is obviously because we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. But we want you to think of the weekend as one story being told out on Good Friday, that's the, the death of Jesus leading into the resurrection, that together those tell one story. So the hope is that you and those you invite would, would consider joining us for both Good Friday and Easter, knowing that it's part of one story. Also, you'll see, you'll see we're doing something on Saturday, an egg hunt and a brunch and free food and watching kids running around and find eggs will be just a great time for our church. So uh, we hope you consider coming to that as well. That's Saturday at 10 here. We'll do it on that grass lot out in the back. All right, and so the next thing is starting the Sunday after Easter, and this is specifically for parents of a fourth grader, fifth grader, or sixth grader, we're doing a class that we haven't done since COVID started, really, which is a specific class for that age group. That age is so important, and there is so much that the kids are learning and becoming in that age, and we really want to have a a time where we can pull them aside for more like a group discussion-based lesson. And so they'll join in here for worship with us, then they'll go into one of their classrooms and learn together with leaders. And so what you should know, especially if you have a kid that age, is we're doing that only at the 1045 service. And so the reason there is because, you know, if you have one kid and like three leaders in a room together, that's not super fun for the kid. And so what we're trying to do is get all those kids together at one service. And so for now, it's only being offered at the 1045 for that reason. So uh, we hope you'll remember to, to join us on that. And any parents, if you have questions, please email Emmy. She'd love to get you any answers on that or me. Okay? Sound good. With that said, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Good morning. The reading for today is from the book of John, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back saying, This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Ben. Good morning, Arcadia. How are you? Good. That was nice. You guys are awake. Those 9 o'clock people could take a lesson. Kidding, if you're normally a 9 o'clocker. All right, so glad you're here. Uh, Tyler already talked a little bit about what Redemption Church is all about. If you're new, that uh, we're part of a bigger network, though we have 
uh, local elders and pastors in each congregation, and we do uh, our own thing uh, in terms of how we're going to present the passage uh, each Sunday. We're all on the same passage. In fact, this afternoon, I'm going to Redemption North Mountain, our newest plant at 4 o'clock. They asked me to come over there and preach, and we're doing the exact same passage over there. But we want it locally contextualized, so that's kind of our deal at Redemption Church. We have 10 congregations, but we have, and it's all redemption, but there are 10 locally uh, contextualized experiences. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, he, I'm the one, if you're new, I'm the one that you're going to see up here maybe 35 Sundays a year, about that many. Uh, primarily, this is what I, I am called to do. Uh, Tyler, who was on the keyboards today, he's our uh, pastor leading a worship and everything, and, and also our, our, uh, our uh, Redemption Communities, which is our version of the small group. Then you saw the other Tyler. We are blessed with Tylers. You saw the other Tyler up here uh, hosting and making the announcements. And then our fourth pastor is Trey. He's our next generation pastor. And uh, he's usually around here. You may have noticed he's missing today. Uh, he's under the weather, so he thought it would be best if he stayed home, and we affirmed him in that. So um, if you're new, we'd love to get to know you one way or the other. You can contact us or somebody uh, on staff. We also have a wonderful staff as well. So uh, please let us know you're out there. So we have been working our way through the Gospel of John. And I, 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 one of the things I want to do every week is set the context so that we know what happened and what's going to happen, and that's what I'm going to do, start with doing uh, this morning. Uh, Jesus has been hanging around in or around the entrance to the temple in Jerusalem for at least the last two and a half chapters, and he's been uh, teaching, and he's been calling people to faith, and of course he's been debating with the professional religious people. I call them perps, so if you hear me say perps, just think professional religious (coughs) person. Well, In chapter 9, he has left now the temple area because the festival of booths, which was kind of the setting, or the festival of tabernacles, which was kind of the setting for all of what was going on in these recent chapters, is now over. And so he's moving away from the temple, but he's still in Jerusalem, or at least in the surrounding area of Jerusalem. He's walking around with his disciples, and there are other people who are still following him. There are people who are curious. There are new believers who are following him. And of course, there are other professional religious persons who are following him and continuing to debate uh, with him. And all of chapter 9 is about this encounter with the man born blind. You heard the first seven verses uh, read by Ben. And then after Easter, Easter is next week, we won't be in John, but after Easter on April 11th, Jesus begins to head back to the temple for what's called the Feast of Dedication, which is a winter festival. It's just a couple of months after the Feast of Booths. And and we know the Feast of Dedication as Hanukkah or uh, the Feast of the Maccabees. It's with the menorah and the eight candles, all that. It's wonderful history, and I would highly encourage you to read about the history of the Maccabees and what happens with um, Hanukkah. At any rate, this Feast of Dedication is really not a pilgrimage feast. So there's Pentecost, there's Passover, and then there's the Feast of Booths, which which swells Jerusalem by tens uh, of thousands of people. It's still a feast. There will still be a lot of people there, but it won't be anything like one of these uh, pilgrimage uh, feasts. But Jesus is still around, so he figures, I might as well attend. I'm already in town, so why not attend? So we'll be looking at that in chapter 10 after Easter. But today's passage is kind of strange, because if you've been around for the last several weeks, you know we've been taking maybe 9 or 10 or 12 verses at a time, throughout um, chapter 7 and 8 
Today we're going to look at all 41 verses in chapter 9. So if you have reservations for brunch at 1 o'clock, you might want to look at... I'm kidding. We'll be out of here on time. Don't, don't worry about that. Um, the reason we're doing that is because this story contains an entire unit. And all of the application that you'll want to understand and see from this story hangs together in such a profound way that we need to handle it all uh, together. So um, here we go. We're going to do several verses at a time. And I want you to have your Bibles out and open. And, and if that means your phone out and open, that's fine. Uh, just, I want you to be able to see the scripture. We'll have it on the screen, yes, but it won't be up there the whole time. And there will be times when you may want to refer down uh, by looking down at what is being said so that you understand what we're talking about. This is really helpful and really important. So looking again at the passage that Ben read for us, the first seven verses. And just so you don't get nervous, I'll spend most of our time in the first seven verses, okay? As he passed by, that's Jesus, he saw a blind man from birth, and his disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? He's probably about 40 years old at this point. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him or through him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. And so he went and washed, and the man came back seeing. So it's interesting. We, we learn in the next few verses that, and, and we should know just in the context, that if this man was born blind, he was also a beggar. That's the only thing you could do in their context to earn any sort of money. And it was not very much money, but that's what he had to do, was he had to beg. And of course, if you're going to beg, you're not going to go out into the wilderness to beg where there aren't people. You're going to find a heavily trafficked area where people are constantly walking by in order to beg. You, you, you're going to be where there's constant traffic uh, coming by. And so it makes sense that Jesus and his disciples would see him. That also means that he's used to people talking about him, talking around him, pointing at him, discussing him without really letting him be involved. I mean, there's absolutely no dignity involved in this. While he's trying to get some money, people are also mocking him and talking about him and making him feel shame. There's no dignity in what's happening. In fact, there's an ancient first century saying in the Mediterranean world, which is where they are, an ancient first century saying that said, it is better to be dead than to be a beggar. This is an awful lot that this guy has in life. And so this is a God-anointed moment that the disciples would ask Jesus about that and get Jesus started on a discussion that, frankly, the question that the disciples ask is kind of a normal question in their context. They say, well, who, well, who sinned? Him or his parents, that's the only possible option for his blindness, is that he sinned or his parents sinned. They really believe in this context, the people in this context, they really believe if you're suffering, it's due to your sin or someone else's sin who's close to you, probably your parents. And this presupposition dominated all theological discussions, even to the point that many rabbis in the first century taught, I know this sounds a little weird, they taught that you could actually sin while you were still in your mother's womb as a fetus. And then you would be cursed coming out. That's, that's what, one of the things that they would... So you could sin pre-birth. And while we shouldn't discount or dismiss the fact 
that personal sin can certainly lead to suffering and to consequences. It's not necessarily true in all cases of suffering and tribulation and challenge that it's due to your sin. In fact, there are 15 different reasons why a person might suffer in this world. And, and those, but we don't have time. Some of you are like, are we going to go over, over all 15? No, we're not. We don't have time. But there's this thing out there called the Internet, and you can find it on there, and some really good scholars have looked at it if you're interested in doing that. Suffering, because the world has fallen, because there's original sin, suffering comes in all shapes, forms, sizes, and for all kinds of different reasons. You can suffer because of something that happened somewhere else or something that didn't happen somewhere else, and you can suffer for it. At any rate, these people believed if you're suffering, it's your fault. You have no other option to discuss. It's your fault. Clean up your life, and you'll quit suffering. That's a lot of pressure, by the way. So Jesus' perspective in this case throws them for quite a loop. Not only the disciples, but everybody else who's there listening. Throws them for quite a loop, but he also sets them straight. He says, sometimes God allows hardship in our lives so that we can experience his power, mercy, and glory in a profound way. When God does something magnificent, when we're in the midst of something awful, we tend to notice that. We also tend at times to explain it away, or other people try to explain it away, as these people will try to do. But we will notice when God works in that. So Jesus is saying, there's a reason for this man's blindness that you have never thought of. It's for God's glory, so that some people might finally see the kingdom of God for themselves. This is kind of like the story of Job, if you're thinking, gee, this sounds like Job. Yeah, it sounds a lot like Job. God had a purpose behind Job's suffering that was grander and far beyond anything we finite human beings can possibly conceive, far beyond anything that Job's friends can possibly conceive. They're the ones that were coming to Job, and they were saying, you, you must have sinned. You know, if you just get your sin life straightened out, and Job's like, no, I've been totally faithful. God's doing something else. I'm not happy about it, but God's doing something else, and I'm going to remain faithful in the midst of this. But it wasn't Job's sin that gave him the life consequences that he had to endure for a season. This man, however, born blind like Job, let's put ourselves in his place. This man born blind like Job, there are two things he'd probably like, just like Job. He would probably desire not to suffer, right? We all desire that when we're suffering. It would be nice if we weren't suffering. So we can understand that. And second of all, he would probably love to get an explanation from God about his suffering. Don't we want explanations from God as well? Job wanted an explanation. If you know the story, at the end of Job's suffering, Job, God comes to Job and Job says, hey, I've got some questions for you. And God says, I know you do. But first, let me talk to you about a few other things and ask you some questions. And then two chapters later, Job goes, nah, never mind. You're God, I'm not, I get it now. You have a purpose that's far beyond anything that I can conceive. And your purposes are all good. But we're the same way. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with not wanting to suffer. Even Peter tells us, he says, look, don't go looking for suffering. Why? There's enough suffering in this world already. You don't have to go looking for it. Why bother go looking for it? It's okay to not want to suffer. But let's also look at Scripture to help us to understand that we certainly don't have all the answers. We need to remember that. We don't have all the answers. 
And God hasn't provided us necessarily with all the answers. We will see clearly in the New Jerusalem when we're there, but we don't see clearly right now. Paul tells us that in one of his letters. Our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, used to say it this way, just because we have a question for God does not obligate him to answer it. And there's a level of contentment we can live in when we begin to understand that. It doesn't mean we don't ask God questions, but it does mean that we need to realize that he's not going to answer every one of them. And sometimes it's better that he doesn't answer rather than giving us the answer we don't want to hear. We usually get even more angry about that. Second of all, Scripture helps us to see that our desires for ease may not be the most important thing in our life, although it's understandable again. I I talk to um, a lot of people about... What are my idols in this world? What are my false gods? What am I most susceptible to? And and I will tell you that one of my idols is comfort. It's not being inconvenienced. Another way of saying it is being left alone, especially when I have my clicker and my Doritos. Just leave me alone, okay? One of my idols is, is, is definitely comfort, okay? But that's not real life. That's just a little slice of life. We need to understand that when you start getting out here and mixing, it's going to be difficult. Jesus says in this world you're going to have trouble. James tells us that we should consider it all joy when we encounter trials of various kinds. Why? Because it's going to test our faith and that's going to produce something. In the Greek, it's called hupomene. It literally means steadfastness, perseverance, endurance, and patience. Those are all good things. So that's good. But what this is also not calling us to is it's not calling us to stoicism. It's not calling us to just sit back and accept the fact that we're going to be miserable all of our lives. We're called into a relationship with God. We're called to seek after his kingdom. His kingdom is filled with joy. His kingdom is filled with wisdom. It's filled with hope. It's filled with all the things that our hearts actually long for. But that means that we have to go. We have to, God initiates and we respond. We are going to go. It's not stoicism. It's not just sitting around and allowing life to happen to us. It is going to God in prayer and having him call us out for his purposes as well. So it's not stoicism. And then third, Scripture helps us to be encouraged in our faith when having faith can be at its most difficult time, which is, again, often in the midst of suffering or persecution or tribulation or disorientation and frustration. Now, an interesting note for first century Jews, which is this context, the notion that human suffering could be used for God's glory was very difficult to accept. So I would argue that very little has changed in 2,100 years. So Jesus tells his disciples, this very moment is why this man is born blind and why he is blind. This very moment. Because in this very moment, other people are going to see the kingdom of God for the first time, as will this man. This man is going to eventually see the kingdom of God for the first time, and that's good news. But talk about a tough ministry calling. We know this guy's 40 years old. We know he's been begging pretty much all of his life. He hasn't seen anything for four decades. He has not been able to see anything, and he's had an absolutely miserable life. And now he's beginning to hear in this conversation around him with this Jesus guy, he's beginning to hear that this was actually a call to ministry for him. 40 years, you're going to be blind and begging. How many of us would like to respond to that call? So think about Paul, the Apostle Paul, the greatest church planner in the history of the world. Just, uh, and he wrote a third of the New Testament. When God called him to ministry, God gave him two bullet points for his ministry. Just two. That's it. Two. Well, that's easy to fulfill. Well, listen to the two bullet points. Number one, Paul, you are going to be an apostle. You are going to be sent to 
the very people that you have hated all of your life. You're going to go to the Gentiles. But that's what the gospel does. The gospel makes the two become one. Paul writes about it in Ephesians chapter 2, that the gospel breaks down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, between any of the races, and, and God can make the two become one. It's an amazing thing. He says, though, you have to go to the people that you don't like, the people that you've been taught your whole life to hate, the people that you think are dirty, the people that you don't even think are people. You have to go to them and minister to them and tell them the good news of Jesus. That's the first bullet point. Here's the second bullet point. You also have to suffer. So go to people you don't like and suffer for it. That's your call into ministry. That's a new ministry that we're announcing today at Redemption Church. And we're going to pass around a clipboard, all of you that would like to sign up for this ministry, where you get to go and talk to people that you don't want to be with and suffer for it. Please, now don't crowd the front. Don't crowd up here. There's plenty of clipboards, plenty of room. That's the world we live in, man. And that's why the gospel is good news. We need to understand that. Paul, Paul went to prison in Rome for two years at the end of the book of Acts. And it was unfair, it was unjust, it was cruel, it was miserable, and it was not in Paul's plans. He didn't, he didn't say, okay, so from 58 to 60 uh, AD, I think I'm going to go to prison and minister there. That was not in his plans. But Paul went and he ministered there. And new people saw the kingdom of God and came to know Jesus, and Paul was thrilled with that. It wasn't how he would have planned it, but he went with it, and he was blessed, and others were blessed. I am a planner. I'm a left brain type A, blah, 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 blah. Pain in the neck. Yes, I am. All of those things. And when my plans get messed up, it bothers me. And yet it seems to me that when my plans get messed up, that's when I see God really working. Because he's trying to remind me that it's not up to me, it's not about me, it's up to him, it's about him. My job in this, your job in this, is to allow God to initiate, and he's always initiating, but allow God to initiate and we respond. And allow him to lead the way. Our purpose is to do what he calls us to, his purpose is to decide on the results and make the results happen. We need to learn from this stuff. So... What about the spitting in the mud thing? Well, there's a picture here. There's an image of the creator, Jesus, big C creator, Jesus using his creation, the dirt, with his divine and holy physical nature to redeem and restore that which is broken and disordered in this world. We hear or read spittle, mud, and eyes, and we go, ew. But this is actually a beautiful picture of God redeeming and restoring and recreating. It is a nod. What he's doing there is a nod both to Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and to Revelation chapters 21 and 22. If you're not doing anything this afternoon, read those four chapters. It's the first two chapters and the last two chapters in the Bible. It's a beautiful picture of, of what is happening there. And what of, the, what of him saying that, you know, we got to work during the day because night is coming? That's Jesus' rhetorical way of saying, there are many things that we need to get done while I'm still here on earth as a human being, and because night is coming. The end of that daylight when I'm here is coming. That's coming through the crucifixion, and so we need to get work, get to work. All right, next passage, 8 through 17. Some of you right now are changing your reservations. You don't need to yet, Okay. So 8 through 17, so the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? 
And some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and I received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. So they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Uh-oh. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. Not the first time we've heard that Jesus tends to divide people, especially based on theology and philosophy and desires. Verse 17, so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. That probably didn't help matters much. So the people struggle to believe the miracle, and so they start offering many explanations. It happens a lot. So what the man does is he does what, really what all Christ followers should do. He testifies to the work that Jesus has done in his life. Now think about this. How long has, Jesus, uh, has this man known Jesus at this point? 30 minutes at the most? 30 minutes maybe, okay? He hasn't been to seminary. He hasn't been to a training seminar on how to tell your friends about Jesus. He hasn't learned a bunch of stuff first before he's worthy of going out and talking about his faith. He hasn't done any of that stuff. I hear so many people say, you know, I need to learn more before I can talk about Jesus. Has Jesus worked in your life? Has he saved you? Yes, you are qualified to talk about Jesus. You're not going to have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. And I went to seminary, probably the wrong seminary, but I went to seminary, okay? I don't have all the answers. The, the point isn't having the answers. The point is telling people about Jesus. And that's what he does. But of course, in the end, for most of, most of the people, they don't like the answer and they go to the Pharisees. And again, there is debate and division and a problem with the Sabbath. They say, he's not of God. He worked on the Sabbath. Others say, yeah, but how is it a sinner, a mere man can do this? Now, about the Sabbath, here is Jesus once again making a person whole on the Sabbath. Yet the perps can only see how this challenges their authority. That's all they care about. And one of the challenges in the background of all of this, this is helpful to know, one of the challenges in the background of all of this is that the Jewish traditional teaching about the coming Messiah, they believed that the Messiah was coming, but the Jewish traditional teaching was one of the signs that he is the Messiah is that he will heal physical blindness. So there's tremendous cognitive dissonance going on with these guys right now. If they admit that this healing was done by Jesus, they also therefore have to admit that he is the Messiah. They don't want to do that. So they ask the restored man again. He kind of shrugs. So they call in his parents. That's what I always do when I can't get an answer from somebody. I call their parents. So they call in his parents. That actually, in their context, is something they would do, 18 through 23. By the way, this is kind of sad what happens here, I think. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. 
And then John adds, parenthetically, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. This, I, I'm a parent, so I'm looking at this through the lens of a parent. That's why I'm like, I, don't, I think this paragraph is a little bit sad. This should be the greatest moment in the parent's life, and of, of course the son's life as well, but it should be the greatest moment in the parent's life as well. Imagine that. But instead, the, the parents throw the restored son under the bus because they're afraid. I guess in their context it would be under a chariot, but they, they were afraid. And, and I do struggle to understand this, but, but we need to remember it's a different culture, it's a different context, it's, there are different factors than the time and space that I live in or that you might live in. One thing I'll give the parents, though, is that in their cultural and in their, in their culture and in their context, yes, their son is of age. That was a big deal. So technically, he could speak for himself. Technically, he should speak for himself, technically. And also, there's this problem. There is the reality that if they are put out of the synagogue, they're also put out of their community and they're put out of their jobs. So as far as they are concerned, to, to side with their child would mean spiritual, economic, relational, and vocational death for them. So their lives essentially would be over. That's a tough decision right there. It's a tough pill to swallow. But it also highlights one of the main reason, reasons that people will not believe in Jesus. And that's because we, feel, we fear other people more than we fear God. We, and the Bible teaches about how this happens. We fear what other people think more than we fear God. That's a problem. So we're submitting to other people rather than submitting to God. We're going to submit to somebody. And by not submitting to God, by asserting your independence, you are in fact submitting to others and submitting to yourself. Not helpful. Not helpful at all. See, we need to understand that there are many others who, over history, have gladly turned their lives upside down for the joy, hope, and salvation of knowing Jesus. There are many who went to the stake. There were many who were fed to the lions. It's not a myth. There are many currently who will lose their jobs and have lost their jobs, lose their families like that. They lose their hope. In this world, they lose all of those things. And, and there are testimonies of people who are glad that they did, because what they gained was so much better. Uh, somebody named, write, if you're a note taker, write this name down. Somebody named Rosaria Butterfield comes to mind in this case. If you don't know her story, she's written a number of books about stuff post her conversion. Rosaria Butterfield was a um, professor of English and women's studies, and in a position of pretty high leadership at Syracuse University. Um, and she was an outspoken secularist uh, who was also uh, in a committed lesbian relationship with another woman. And over the course of two years, a Christian couple entered her life serendipitously and started talking to her about Jesus. And two years later, she gave her life to Christ. But that also meant that she had to go to her family, her community, her partner, and her job, her work, and she had to say, I am now a follower of Christ, and I am going to follow his teachings, and I'm going to follow the biblical sexual ethic. I'm going to do all of these things. And she lost her job. 
She lost her power. She lost her status. She lost her position. She lost her friends. She lost her family. She lost everything. And she will confess to you that she gained everything. She lost everything that we think is going to make us happy, but she says, no, I gained everything in that. Um, the book I would highly recommend is The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. If you've ever heard of it, you should read it. But now comes what I think is the best paragraph in the, in the chapter, and one that, frankly, it tickles me. I think it's funny, because I'm weird, but here you go. Verse 24. So for the second time, uh, the Pharisees called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though, is that I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? I love that line. <laughs> and they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Ooh. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never, uh, never since the world began has it been heard of that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us? And they cast him out. He wasn't even in yet. He was already out because of his blindness. He couldn't, he couldn't worship because he was unclean because of his blindness. Now they're saying you can't come in because you, did, you said some stuff we don't like. Okay? And they don't even use Jesus' name. Notice in verse, they know Jesus' name. Notice in verse 29, they specifically avoid using his name. That's an ancient first century form of trash talking, of, of not honoring somebody by not using their name purposefully. In verse 24, the first thing they say to him is, give, glory, give God the glory. That is religious speak. The subtext to that, it's religious speak for agree with us or else. That's what they were saying to him. And then in verse 25, we see that the man with no power and no status says to the men with all the worldly and cultural power and status, you're asking me the wrong questions and you're telling me to do the wrong things. And then in verse 27, the man with no power or status is he being sarcastic or is he sincerely asking a question? My opinion is he's sincerely asking a question. It sounds sarcastic and it would be wonderful if he intended to kind of stick it to him verbally. I don't think that's what's happening though. I think he's just telling them what happened. He's just testifying as to the facts of the case. That's it, but it's really driving them nuts to do that. But it really doesn't matter either way if he's sarcastic or sincere. It doesn't matter because his statement and his questions are riling them up. I love this chapter and especially this, these verses. So in verses 28 and 29, the perps play what they think is their trump card. They say, well, you're with him, but we're with Moses. Now, I think that's funny also because if you look back to chapter 8 and 7, they were all about being the children of Abraham. That didn't work. Okay, now we'll call up Moses. Okay, they just get, they're looking for anything to assert their authority. And then, he, and then they're also still all over this. They keep at, where did he come from? Where did he come from? We don't know where he came from. Where did he come from? They don't get it. 
They've been told by Jesus, and now this man is telling them. He must have come from God. Jesus said, I came from the Father. They don't get it. They will not believe because they will not believe. They are too invested in their own kingdom to see God's kingdom. And our human unwillingness to believe something obviously true causes us to do goofy things, just like the people in this passage. Let let me list them for you. Here's what unbelief causes us to do. And I've experienced all of these with people. Unbelief causes us to set false standards that that can never be met. Unbelief is self-righteous, self-centered, and narcissistic. Unbelief always demands more and more evidence, but no matter how much evidence is presented, it is never enough. Unbelief conducts research in which its only purpose is to confirm already held positions, opinions, and beliefs. And unbelief rejects facts, especially in preference to feelings. It's not that feelings are bad or wrong, but if we're living only by feelings, we're going to have issues, we're going to have problems. And then verses 30 to 33, I would argue, other than the moment he saves and he, and he can see again, this is the blind man's, the man born blind, his, his finest moment. This nobody, this former beggar, this man who all of his life could not worship with his kin because he was, was considered unclean because of his blindness, he totally outmaneuvers the professionals at their own game. He puts them in their place, not meanly, not harshly, but he very simply does it with gospel-centered truth. And follow his logic. His argument is sound. It's irrefutable. He says, you claim to not know where he comes from, but he opened my eyes. He must be from God. You claim God doesn't listen to sinners, which, by the way, is confirmed in several Old Testament passages. You claim that God doesn't listen to sinners, yet he healed me. Maybe he's not a sinner. Bingo, he's not. And what he did has never happened before, so he must be from God. There's that whole idea of the Messiah healing physical blindness. Every one of these points just aggravated the perps more and more and more, and they blow their stacks in verse 34. So I love what Donald Guthrie writes in summarizing the perp's position here. The religious professionals were more concerned to show contempt for the man's former ailment than pleasure for his present condition. What a terrible and miserable place to be. But like many others for the last 2,100 years, like Rosaria Butterfield, this man gains his sight, spiritually and physical. He gains Jesus, redemption, salvation, and the kingdom of God. But yeah, Kind of loses everything else. But he's glad and thankful to do it. Also consider this. By the time John wrote this gospel, it's in the early 90s. So it's 60 years after Jesus was crucified and ascended after the resurrection. It's 60 years. And many of uh, the gospel of John's readers were Jewish Christians who had been expelled from their synagogues because they believed in Jesus. So this text right here truly resonates with this audience. And then the last paragraph, verses 35 through 41. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So there's more irony, more juxtaposition. There's more upside down being turned right side up. And those who think they're right side up are being turned upside down. But notice again the emphasis on Believe. 
We've said this every single week going through John. The purpose of the Gospel of John is that we would believe, that we would have faith, that we would trust. The Pharisees say, believe us, see us. Jesus says, believe God, see me. So that's the question for us. What about us? I often reflect on how difficult things can be for me. For me. I'm selfish. I have a streak of narcissism. I'm very worried about myself. My, my idols are comfort, not being inconvenienced. But when I really begin to think about where I live, what I'm doing, who I'm with, I've got it pretty good, and so do you. This is really good compared to most other places, most other times, most other spaces. Do we have any idea how difficult we don't have it? That's what makes it so hard for us to see Jesus. The fact that we don't have much difficulty makes it hard for us to truly see our need for Jesus. But we must see Jesus. It's the key to everything else. And I mentioned the reason that they didn't see Jesus was because they were too invested in their kingdom that they had created for themselves. So they're blinded by their kingdom. Often we have the same problem. We create our own kingdoms, and Jesus gets in the way of those kingdoms. Are we blinded by our kingdoms? Are we blinded by our kingdoms of meism? of philosophies, of politics, of economics. And then you add the fact that the world tells us that Jesus isn't essential. The world tells us that it can satisfy us. The world tells us it can make us whole. The world tells us, cast our eyes on it to see the world. But it's a lie. We're living a lie when we pick up and, and, and we pick the world and its philosophies and its and its promises and its politics over Jesus. It's hard to see, but we must see. We too need our blindness healed by Jesus spiritually. A lot of times when discussing this passage, people think, and I think it's interesting to think about this, 40 years of blindness, when he opened his eyes, what was that moment like? He got to see colors and shapes, he got to see uh, the difference between water and, and mountains and rocks. He got to see where he'd been walking and sitting all these years. He got to see people, not just hear their voices. And here you go, think about this. Now he's connecting voices with the actual person. That must have been awesome. Could you imagine that? And yet the greatest thing that was revealed to him was Jesus. He came to Jesus. And he would tell you that he would trade all of that to be with Jesus. Because that's the greatest prize. The greatest prize is being able to see Jesus. Consider verse 41. Jesus said to the Pharisees, if you were blind, is there such a person with no revelation from God? Paul answers that for us in Romans chapter 1, and the answer is no. Everybody knows there is a God. Just look at the creation. It demands a creator. There is no one with an excuse. No, not one, he says. Jesus is simply making a point to these Pharisees. You guys have seen the truth and you're still blind. That's a problem. Those who cannot admit to their blindness have no hope of recovering their sight. 
And our prayer is that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes and our ears and give us the wisdom to know and to submit to the will of God. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth, but and while we love that and appreciate that, and we find so much in it, we also thank you for who Jesus is. We thank you for his salvation. We thank you for his sacrifice. And Lord, we know that because Jesus was righteous and he's imputed that righteousness to us who are, are believers at the cross, he's done that for us, took our sin gave us his righteousness. And we know, therefore, we are called to righteousness and we are called to holiness. We need to remember that that call, as this man born blind clearly demonstrates, is not just to put off one thing, but also to pursue now the kingdom of God, the good and glorious and praiseworthy and excellent and just and pure and lovely things of the kingdom of God. That it's not just getting rid of the junk, it is experiencing and living in the joy living in the kingdom. Let us do that. Let us do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we, we have this time of communion every week. Our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, said, communion is so important that we're not going to take an offering during the service because we need to do communion. That's how important communion is. If you've ever wondered why we don't take an offering and have a special song and plead with you to fill up our coffers, <laughs> we think communion is more important. We also believe the Holy Spirit is going to move in your lives to understand giving. That's between you and God, and we love that. That's how important communion is, though. It's, it's, it's a celebration of who we are in Jesus, but it's also a confession that we need Jesus. It's both of those things. And so hopefully you have your kit with you. If you don't, they're in the lobby. You can go and grab one. And, and let me just say this, too. Um, I know the world is moving in a direction, hopefully, away from pandemic. I know that. Um, the greatest thing I think that we could do as a church when that is over is to be able to have communion like we used to have it again. To be able to come, the movement in the room is special. It's, it's so important. I want to be able to do that again. I've been chomping at the bit to be able to do that again. And we talk about our COVID protocols every single week. The elders talk about it. The pastoral staff talks about it every single week. We're just not there yet. We still want to be cautious. We still want to be careful. We still think it calls for us. It's not over yet. We still think it calls for us to be very, very careful. And so we want to be careful in that. Believe me, I want to share communion with you and walk around with you again. I want to be able to do that again soon. And I'm hoping it'll happen soon. And I want you to know that we're looking at that every single week. But for now, we still have these. By the way, we had a pastor's meeting here this last week. And one of the pastors from the other congregation tasted this. We've decided it doesn't taste very good. Okay, apparently this is the best tasting of all the kids because they were all saying, where are you getting these? Because this tastes good compared to ours. So, so rejoice and be glad. Let's do communion. <laughs>
Again, thank you very much for being here today, uh, worshiping with us, hearing the gospel, hearing about Jesus. And let the words from this song be our benediction, our charge, and our prayer as we go. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his favor, favor to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace now and forevermore. God bless you all. Have a great week. Go and live all of life all for Jesus. We'll see you next week.